0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My left eye sees pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar to steam, drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. shuttered to mind, worse than blind.
1: 2020, vision. Doing well? No baseball, week one, huh? I wonder how that'll go. Which yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm
0: pretty mad at both sides, honestly. I just think this is totally unnecessary. Um, you know, there, there's got to be a way that you can make a deal that's reasonable. I, I think, you know, the owners have moved substantially in the direction of the players on increasing salaries of, of players before they become free agency eligible. They could probably move a little bit further. I agree with the players. There should be some things that make it more difficult to tank and be uncompetitive to strip down and do a $30 million uh, collective team salary. So, you know, there's, there's reasonable concerns on both sides. There's just no reason why we have to miss a week's worth of games. And, you know, especially with baseball, it's just, you know, baseball stats, I mean, the season's ruined already, right? 156 game season. Okay. So, you know, all, all those typical benchmarks of, how many home runs you ought to hit, how many RBIs, various records that could or could not be broken. It's it's ruined before the season started because, you know, you, you're not going to have the same number of games that essentially every other season had. you know, I mean, two years ago, they, we could have had a hundred game season easily and we got 60 because of the same, the same dynamics. So, you know, I'm, I'm already writing the season off as, as, you know, seven asterisks, um, And, you know, maybe they can turn it around. Maybe they can cut a deal soon, but
1: it's, it's very frustrating. All right. So you're, as it, as it made you downtrodden about the Red Sox, it's the key. So,
0: Well, I don't, you know, their individual prospects to me all depend upon whether they can get two or three new relievers. If if they can get a couple of new relief relief pitchers, then, you know, I think they've got a, a decent team heading into the season, but yeah, you know, I, I got an email from, MLB TV, which is this subscription service, watch out of market games, watch every Red Sox game, except when they're playing, in my case, you know, New York teams. And it's an auto renewal on March 1st. And man, are they timed that wrong? (laughs) Because like two hours after they announced they're not playing games, they have to send me an email saying, oh, you know, we're going to extend your subscription from last year because there's no games to watch. I said, "Okay, how about you just cancel my subscription and we'll see. We'll see what we do. So, I, you know, I, I just think this is, are they watching the ratings of sporting events in COVID era, right? I mean, other than football playoffs, I mean, you're not getting 50% of the audience you were getting two years ago, right? And those were already down. So if you're looking to ruin baseball and turn that $10 billion pie that you're fighting over into 6 billion, um, you know, keep it up because that's the trajectory that they're on.
1: All right. You sound upset, Matt. You better be listening I am, to you.
0: I'm fired up about this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You, you are the individual who chose to go to Boston University because there was a certain player on the Red Sox. So <laughs> that's right. Don't so get on the wrong know. side of you with baseball. Go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I've got cred on this point. Yeah. yeah. We'll let that go. And we'll turn <clears> Aristotle. <throat> more pleasant things, tyranny, uh, monarchy, and the preservation of these regimes.
1: Sure. So uh, the theme of book five of Aristotle's politics has been revolution from one regime to another, and then the preservation, is it possible to preserve regimes? So at the end of book five, here in chapters 10 and 11, he takes up the same subject applied to monarchy and to tyranny. And as is his way, he'll start out by defining what kings and tyrants are, He says that, or he writes that the idea of a king is to be a protector of the rich against unjust treatment and of the people against insult and oppression. Whereas a tyrant, as has often been repeated, has no regard to any public interest except as conducive to his private ends. His aim is pleasure, the aim of a king, honor. Wherefore also in their desires they differ. The tyrant is desirous of riches, The king of what brings honor. And the guards of a king are citizens, but of a tyrant, mercenaries. So, this first description of what kingly rule is as opposed to tyrannical rule. He then goes deeper into his definition of tyranny by telling us that tyranny has all the vices both of democracy and oligarchy. From democracy, tyrants have borrowed the art of making war upon the notables and from oligarchy so of tyranny the end is wealth so the tyrant and the king approach the few who are wealthy and the many who want their freedom differently the king seeks to not so much placate but to ennoble those right impulses of the protection of wealth and the desire for opportunity the tyrant takes advantage of those impulses and wants to worsen them uh, so that both the few and the many move further and further away from the law. What do you make of this introduction to monarchy and tyranny, Matt?
0: Well, I think it fits very nicely with the overall account of regimes he's given us that you know, kings are one of the good regimes, uh, the rule of the one for the sake of the common good, whereas the tyrant is the rule of the one for the sake of, of the tyrant. And you see how this then interplays with the other bad regimes, right? So the, the tyranny takes the worst of democracy, combines it with the worst of oligarchy. Uh, whereas you think about the king as the protector against the worst of democracy and the worst of oligarchy. So I think there's, there's kind of a nice account here that, that fits well with what we've seen in his description of regimes. And I think you know for the modern applications, uh, we don't see many kings of the sort that he's describing here, but I think as you work your way through his account of the king, you can you can think about some parallels with a, a prime minister or a president and, and look at how executive leadership is exercised today under law, under constitutions, for the common good when it's done well, and, and how it can look, of course, when it's not done well, whether that's when you have a, a despot, in some kind of authoritarian regime or, or just an executive like a president or prime minister who's, who's seeking private gain rather than the public benefit.
1: Well, it makes sense then that if the tyrant is excessive in his rule and seeks to distort oligarchy and democracy, whereas the king is trying to encourage the best within those two regimes, that the reaction uh, from the people to those regimes or the reaction of those who want goodness or virtue would be very different. So here near the end of chapter 10, he goes through the motive of those attempting to overthrow a tyranny from within. And he says two things move people to want to overthrow a tyranny from within hatred because what they see, they hate and contempt because what they see in the tyrant is so small. Uh, He does, however, warn that those who want to overthrow a tyranny must be prepared to die. They must be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. So you can hate a tyrant, you can have contempt for a tyrant, but you have to beware when you try to overthrow a tyrant because a tyrant could be on his guard and use those same features that allowed his regime to come into being in the first place uh, to guard against any attacks upon it. Whereas he tells us, that kingly rule has less to fear, right, from from internal um, uh, objection, that most of the time kingly rule is overthrown when either the members of a royal family, he writes, quarrel among themselves, or when kings begin to administer their thing more in the direction of a tyrant. So here he's setting us up. For chapter 11, where he's going to go into the interesting conversation about, well, how do you preserve a monarchy, and how do you preserve a tyranny? So at this point, Matt, you're probably like, well, Aristotle, he's so even keeled, and and he wants what produces happiness, what's conducive to happiness. So he's talked about the right or true regimes, and he's talked about the distorted regimes. How dare he, at the end of book five, go into a discussion on how tyranny might be preserved, what do you make of him taking on this subject along with the preservation of monarchy in chapter 11?
0: Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say two things on that. So on, on one hand, um, there is something in Aristotle of, of sort of working through the system categorically, right? So as sort are of asking the question, okay, I got six regimes, I'm going to give you analysis on where they come from. I'm going to give you analysis on how uh, you preserve them and, and advice, you know, so there's kind of that, philosophical completeness, but with Aristotle, there's always an underlying uh, moral account of things that goes along with that. And so I think if you look at you know the advice that he gives for preserving tyranny, there's really two opposite extremes that he takes up. Either you just go all in on being a tyrant, and this is, I think it's it's meant to be the reductio ad absurdum, right? You, you've got to ruin your people. You've got to, you've, you know, sort of, I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent in some ways, of, of Machiavelli uh, moving forward, but also, you know, it, it reads a lot like Plato's account of, of the tyrant. Right? What was the tyrant need to do? Well, you can't have any friends, uh, be suspicious of everybody. And, you know, you read accounts of, say, Stalin or something of this, someone like that from recent history, and 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 you see all this, right? This is just like the playbook that they're running in order to try to survive, constantly paranoid, constantly um, an enemy of their own people. Uh, it's it's clear from the broadest account of, Plato's uh, of Aristotle's politics, that's not his vision for a good community. And so then the second half of of describing what it takes to survive as a tyrant is all really about, in essence, not being a tyrant uh, and and moderating. Just like he's argued that the way are a good democracy is by not being a pure democracy, but 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 mixing other elements. It's the same thing when it comes <clears throat> to preserving tyranny. The best the best tyranny is is one that's uh, least tyrannical ultimately.
1: Yeah, the, the details, right, of that, that first way of preserving a tyranny uh, are really interesting, right? Like you said, they, they kind of, they're the clear playbook of most tyrants. Humiliate your subjects, create mistrust among them. And then thirdly, I think really interestingly, make your subjects incapable of action, for no one will attempt the impossible. So make them powerless make them distrust one another and humiliate these, these individuals who were in your regime. And I think that it, you, know, you can also read the second part, the second way to preserve um, the tyranny in which you said, well, you know, the opposite principle of doing those three things is to not do those three things. But if the heart of the tyrant really is the tyrant's own interest, there could be kind of a seduction of the people, kind of a, a, a mastery of optics in the second sense, where the tyrant still kind of gets what he wants, which is not the common good, but he's preserved a peace for himself because he appears to be something that he's not. So in, in many ways, when I think of these two options that he, he produces for us, you know, one is kind of what you might call a, a very explicit Machiavellian approach. And the other is a very esoteric Machiavellian approach that may be closer uh, to to how Machiavelli's ambitions worked. It could very well be, as the case of Richard III, that someone starts as the latter type of the tyrant, um, and then they become more explicit uh, in their desire to uh, to achieve what they're after uh, near the end uh, of the play or or their lives. So um, really, I mean, interesting, I think, especially, of course, given, you know, the news cycle and the word tyrant and you know, the Putin versus, you know, democracy, Putin versus the world has definitely been the theme of the news cycle uh, the last uh, week or two uh, after the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And then there's the propping up of Ukrainian president Zelensky as kind of the defender of of all things good. Um, I think as is often the case, right, the the story has some complexities uh, that are um, brushed aside, set aside. Uh, And I think, you know, some of the more interesting things that I've read this week have to deal with kind of how did Ukraine get to the place where it is? Um, How did uh, Russia get to the place uh, where it is? not defending uh, Putin as a, as a person or as an individual, but really looking at geopolitics from the demise of the Soviet Union up until the present day. You know, what was the status of, of NATO in the late 90s and early aughts? Uh, what were some of these conversations that took place between the West um, and Russia during this time? Was there a clear desire there uh, to embrace uh, Russia into some kind of Euro- European orbit? Uh, so these are these are things that you kind of set aside, you know, probably rightly so, given the you see the bombs exploding, you see the invasion of one country uh, by another, but it's really interesting for us, right, that we 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 just quickly define a case as this versus this uh, without a, a sense of the nuance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting as we're talking about these models of of executive rule um, to see how. Kind uh, of the portrait of Zelensky versus Putin matches pretty nicely with with the, the monarch, the king, or the modern executive, the president, and and the tyrant. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the way that Zelensky has has rallied Ukraine and Ukrainians and really broader European world and beyond has been um, around. A stand of personal courage, right? a willingness, I think perhaps more than anything else, to simply stay and give and you know, to, to ignore the councils of prudence you know, get out there, preserve the government, you know, you're more important uh, as the head of state, even if you're somewhere else. Um, to ignore that counsel, even the counsel seems of the United States, right? providing him a way out and say no. It's more important that I, I stay here in Kiev, risking my life uh, as, as a visible representation of the courage that I'm calling for in my countrymen. And I think that's, that's been powerful. And it, and it has this kind of, whatever else is the backstory of, of his you know, individual um, political career, which is fascinating. Um, hard to believe he's the voice of Paddington and in, in the Ukrainian versions of Paddington and Paddington 2. Among other things, uh, but here we are, right? He's president, and and there he is, recording these these videos of himself and members of his cabinet, you know, right there, on scene, rallying his country. And I think it's it's been something that has been a, a demonstration of a kind of courage that, in kind of post um, post everything Europe, <laughs> we're not used to seeing personal courage. we you're used to seeing technocratic competence and. And uh, the kind of prudence that goes along with that, a kind of mock prudence, maybe that goes along with that. But to see somebody who's just personally courageous rallying his, his country in some ways like an old time king, right, who's drawn his sword at the, at the head of the army, uh, I think has been a kind of
1: remarkable thing. Right, and there's another angle too that I think that is also quite interesting that goes back to Samuel Huntington's thesis in the late 90s, early aughts, the clash of civilizations where you're beginning to see these lines of fracture between um, an Eastern uh, Orthodox uh, Christianity and kind of Western more secular uh, Christianity. And how will that divide uh, play out? Because there are many, uh, uh, I think a solid commentator uh, in the United States um, who kind of looking at this division of types kind of rightly sees kind of uh, perhaps, um, you know, not the virtues of Putin's rule, but perhaps the aptness of a critique of of a West that has become kind of postmodern, has become post-truth, um, post-Christian uh, post, um, sensibility, etc. cetera. So, um, you know, I think we have to be careful, be inter- interesting to see, you know, where this all plays out within Ukraine and to take a closer look, you know, at the individuals, um, at Zelensky and others, you know, in, in that regime. I think another thing that we need to be thinking about is, well, what's going to happen on the ground? So it's, 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 it's one thing, you know, to, uh, to exhibit that courage and, and to stay on the ground. But there are other examples, right, where uh, if, if the goal is long-term reestablishment of Ukraine and you embody that spirit, of what it means to be ukrainian you know much like a de gaulle departing from france um, at a certain point um, in world war ii i am the regime uh, i will carry forth you know the return of, of the true france uh, when we we come back and and overthrow the nazis so just just something to think about it'll be interesting to see how things play out it, it doesn't look like um, things on the ground uh, are holding uh, good for the ukrainians um, and um, you know that kind of hesitancy of Western Europe, but probably less hesitancy now than was a week ago, uh, will, I think, um, will prove you know, problematic uh, for the, the preservation of Ukraine. I think more could probably be done, but it's hard uh, to, to break the, the um, technocratic, uh, bureaucratic hold uh, where you simply say something and then you hope that the other person accepts your definition of international community, international law, peace, Etc. So uh, to be seen, uh, certainly uh, we pray for the, the church in Ukraine and, and the people there and, and all in that struggle.
0: All right. Well, we're going to wrap up the show by turning to the grade book. And of course, last week we used De Tocqueville's crystal ball to make our predictions about the State of the Union address, which was last night. And I would say we did pretty well. Um, you know, having given the speech a, a good read this morning, I've I've gone away from watching the State of the Union address, I'd rather not sit through 60 minutes of, um, well, 20 minutes of speaking and, and 40 minutes of applause and, and up and down and, and all the, the theater that goes around that. But I think, you know, the, the major themes that we talked about last time were, were largely present there. The, the narratives that he was trying to present were similar to those that we uh, were, were discussing last week. So let, let's
1: run through this a little bit. And then I will go, say that, uh, however, I, did, I want to get it out there before we begin our analysis. Yeah. I gave my state of the school twice yesterday at seven uh-huh. in the morning and at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and it clocked in at about 14 minutes. So it can uh, be wasn't, done. There, there were not 40 minutes of applause. That's the problem. Let me say something uh, about the address. Yeah but there weren't booze either. Um, Okay. Okay. But uh, it can be done. You can, you can give a state of the schools to the union in less than 20 minutes.
0: Yeah. So nobody tore up your speech. Nobody shouted. You lie.
1: no, (laughs) Not that I could see. I mean, okay. was, there were only people in the room, but um, I, okay. I didn't I hadn't I released, hadn't released my talk to the uh, Associated Press of Bernie before. Okay. going into this but I probably yeah, probably why.
0: So let's let's turn to the speech and um, so we've got the three topics we mentioned last week were Ukraine, uh, inflation and and democracy. And so the opening part of the speech focused on Ukraine. Uh, what would you say about that, Dave? How, how did that comport to your expectations?
1: Well, I think, right, the, the idea here is to try to weave in uh, the, the Russian um, enemy and uh, the pitting of uh, kind of Russian aggression uh, versus Western democracy, building a coalition of of the defenders of democracy, uh, against, um, uh, you, you didn't use the word evil because you can't use that word anymore, but against a, a bad foe. And I think it kind of sets things up for other foes. And I think that was my main thought last week that there was going right. to be a tie between what's wrong with Putin and what's wrong with these these anti-democratic forces within the United States.
0: Yeah, I think there was some suggestion of that. And certainly Donald Trump's... Um, Praise, at least to some degree, of, of Putin this last week was was a matter of a lot of discussion and controversy. There were Republicans that were trying to distance themselves from that. There were others that were trying to not distance themselves from that, maybe not affirm it, but also stay on the right side of Trump. This is the the ever-present uh, calculation that American, at least uh, Republican leaders, seem to be always making. Um, do I risk the ire of Trump and uh, Trump voters? So that was something that was certainly in view over the last week. And I think you're right, that implicit connection between the friend of Putin, the friend of of anti-democracy, and the friend of Trump was was certainly there. How about on
1: inflation? Well, I think, is the inflation caused by the spending of government Monday? Is it caused by $20 trillion that have been put out there? Um, Has it been caused by... um, Limiting our uh, domestic oil supply? Uh, has it been caused by uh, people being out of work and hence um, uh, production being uh, pushed back? No. no. <laughs> um, none, of, none of those things that might have caused inflation have actually caused inflation. Well, to some degree, okay, COVID caused inflation, but not our response to COVID. That didn't, in any way, cause um, inflation. And then again, you know, the, the corporations. And so the, the big corporations are, are charging too much. Um, uh, they should change their business model. And if only they proceeded like the federal government, then we would be in, in good shape. But the only problem with that is they can't, you know, borrow trillions of dollars in order to uh, reduce, you know, uh, or, or make easier their bottom line, correct? but um yeah you know what we're still in the time period of build back better and there's still time to build back better so we will build back better with lower inflation
0: yeah it was really striking how government was the solution to inflation there was nothing about spending that was not an, at all an issue it was the corporations it was some of the circumstances and and it was then just a, a replay i mean Remember all those bills you didn't want, you know, three months ago, pass those bills. That, that was basically the refrain here when it came to inflation and it came to the general domestic program. Really no new ideas. Uh, there were a few things that were framed at the end for things that we're supposed to unify around. But, but the primary thrust was just to say, you know, I still think you should have passed my bills. Uh, Joe Manchin, <laughs> get on board <laughs> or whoever else needs to in order to get these, these bills through. And just zero responsibility for for the inflation that, as as you laid out the case there, uh, there's very clear lines of connection from the policies of this administration to to inflation, and, and yet no acknowledgement of of any connection there whatsoever. Then democracy,
1: we were we were well, you know, it was all coming back to democracy, right? It was yeah. all going to come back to democracy, and and you know here that you know the the big issue um, that has been in play in preparation uh, for 2022 and the 2024 election are voting rights. So what is the standard whereby an individual should vote? And should you have any standard? Should there be a a time period in which votes are cast? Um, Should there be a, a signature on absentee ballots? Should there be some visible identification um, when you go into vote and, and if you have any of these standards, does it mean that you're trying to take away people's right to vote? And I just, I don't know if I ever mentioned this map, but I just, I found it incredibly ironic when I was getting, uh, my, uh, my booster. And when I was, was getting, uh, my original, um, J and J shot, I had to show my ID to get those shots. Yeah. So something that everyone is in favor of, right. A lot of people are in favor of protecting yourself against COVID. You have to show your ID when you do something that they want you to do, but you shouldn't have to show your ID when you want to vote. It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, until a couple of days ago, you want to eat a hamburger in a restaurant, in New York city. You got to show your vaccine card, right? <laughs> and, they, and they're going to inspect it, and take a look at it. Okay, you got the dates right, you know is this. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting the things that require identification and and very careful scrutiny versus the things that don't. And you think about the significance of the one group versus the other, and and you're just left thinking, okay, well, is it is it problematic for us to think that? when the stakes are high, as in an election, that, that people might, if they're not otherwise held accountable, use nefarious methods to get the outcome they want? I mean, is that is that a surprising thing to surmise based upon what we know of human nature? Uh, doesn't seem to be. And yet for some reason, efforts to make the vote fair and ensure that people are actually voting under the name that, that is theirs Seem to be raising all kinds of concerns in a context where, by the way, we just had an incredible turnout. Right? <laughs> it would be interesting if, if, if you had had really low turnout in the twenty in the two thousand and twenty election, and you're trying to diagnose what you know what happened there. Why why did we only have uh, you know seventy or sixty five or fifty million people show up when there should have been many many more? But when you have the highest number of people voting in history. It's a strange time to be going out there telling everybody that the right to vote is under
1: existential attack. Yeah, and then of course the other emphasis in a speech, which is um, the, the fact that you know you have, you know the, this this right that, uh, as you know, um, is unsaid—the right to an abortion—that is also the thing being pushed. Where you know once again, let's we need to move forward not backward on this issue when in reality, when you're talking about something like human life, we ought to want to work upward. That's not a matter of backward or forward, but upward uh, to a place where we're uh, protecting and securing uh, the sanctity of human life. We're doing so in a way uh, that tends towards the needs uh, of uh, healthcare and, and the health um, uh, of moms. But you know, none of this kind of a nuanced understanding, um, you know, within um, the application uh, to abortion rights. Um, and I think that you would have, it would have been predictable because, right, this is one of those issues that gets out a lot of the Democratic base, uh, but not really kind of, uh, once again, you know, kind of a, a keen understanding, I think, of where middle America is on this issue. And, you know, if, if you are a Democratic um, uh, leader, a Democratic administration, and you have a tenure with where middle America is, uh, you usually don't have a long tenure in office. Yeah, I just
0: think there's such a disconnect between the language of constitutional right, this is you know, critically important, and an unwillingness to name that. Is there any other fundamental right that people won't name? Why is that, right? What, is, is it just a political calculation? I don't think so. I think there's something in conscience that tells you to claim a right to abortion is wrong. A right to take the life of an unborn child, to claim that as a right under the Constitution, which is framed in support of the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, to say that there's a right to an abortion in that context, it's wrong. And yeah. and the people that that want to support that cause are are embarrassed to name the cause by and large. Now there's, there's a few that will, that will do that. But why is it that there's always euphemism? Why is it that he uses this very awkward, the constitutional right affirmed in Roe versus Wade standing president for half a century is under attack as never before (laughs) Just say the right to abortion is under attack as never before. You can cut out a dozen words there. No problem right? Yeah. But, but no, it's, it's a constitutional right affirmed in a certain case, okay? So mm-hmm. we're not really saying that it's actually in the Constitution. We're, okay. we're saying, well, the court said it was in the Constitution, and we're not going to say actually what it is, but we're going to describe it in these broad terms because we're ashamed to name it. We, we, we know that we can't seriously contend that there's an actual right to an abortion under the U.S. Constitution, if we're thinking about this and the way we framed it last time was does this help the cause of democrats in the 2022 midterm right if we if we use that standard how would you grade the speech
1: well i think that certainly the foreign policy aspect of the speech uh, to the degree that there's bipartisan support for helping ukraine uh, couldn't do anything but help. I think because you know I think that you know he's trying to win over uh, independence. He's trying to win over especially suburban independent moms, and I imagine uh, that group watching what's going on in Ukraine um, could very well respond to uh, something like we need to you know gather around um, and and help defend Ukraine. Help help the Ukrainians defend themselves. So I think that that at least kind of kind of puts the speech in the uh, B range. Um, I don't think that the other remarks are going to get him anywhere. So I, I'd say if he probably started with a B, that might've brought him down to a C. And and really what he's in need of one year into his administration is something more like a B plus, A minus performance.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's like a C kind of speech, a C minus speech. There, there was a lot of expression of optimism and taking credit for all kinds of things, which of course is typical in such speeches, but I don't think that there was a plausible case for that independent voter who's skeptical, much less the Republican who's skeptical, that that was credit that was well-deserved. Right. You, you can claim, well, we did these things and, and good things followed, and yet somebody is still looking at the price of the gas pump and the price at the, the grocery store and wondering, well, really, if you're doing all these great things, why am I not feeling that? Why am I not experiencing that? So I think there was a little bit too much celebration without uh, the grounds for celebration and, and really too much rinse and repeat when it came to the domestic agenda of saying, no, the, the real solution to our problems is the same things I've been peddling for the last year that, that haven't been especially popular. And yet if we only do those things, we can solve the problems that, that we all see around us. All right, well, we'll leave it there for this week. Thank you as always for joining us. We'll look forward to being back with you next time. In the meantime, if you would subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform, we'd appreciate that. You can also contact us at DemocracyInAmericaToday at gmail.com. We'll talk to you soon.